Welcome everybody to the Cato Institute. My name is Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. 20 years ago, nobody would have compared India to uh, East the East Asian success stories or even referred to it as a miracle economy. India had lived through decades of low growth, the so-called Hindu rate of growth that had kept the country mired in, in poverty. And it pretty much stuck to its, its web of uh, heavy regulations, central planning, and state ownership of assets. And then a balance of crisis uh, occurred that coincided with national elections uh, that 20 years ago this month brought a new government to power that initiated a wave of reforms that has resulted in high growth and the transformation of Indian society. Millions uh, of people have been lifted out of poverty. There is a rising middle class. Indians, India's service sector is taking off. Indian MNCs, multinational corporations, are uh, world-class and even uh, buying up uh, companies and competitors in Europe and elsewhere. And the country looks set to continue its high rate of growth for many years to come, with some people predicting that before too long, its rate of growth is going to surpass that of China. India is, as my colleague Swami Iyer says, an elephant that turned into a tiger. To be sure, India still has a long way to go, both in terms of development and in terms of, of reforms. It ranks 87 out of 141 countries in the Fraser Institute's Economic Freedom of the World uh, report. Today, I'm very pleased to have with us uh, a very distinguished panel of experts that includes uh, three of the most well-known uh, experts on the Indian economy, and I've asked them to, to explain how and why the world's largest democracy uh, was able to introduce the reforms that, that it did, what have been the results, and what is left uh, to be done. That's a lot of ground to cover for in 15 minutes each, but we'll have certainly plenty of time for discussion. So let's get on with it. And so let me let me introduce our first speaker, Swami Iyer, who is a research fellow at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at the Cato Institute. He is well known in India for his long-running Swaminomics column that appears in the Sunday Times of uh, India. He is also has a regular column in the Economic Times. He's been the the uh, the editor of of uh, India's two biggest financial dailies, the Economic Times and the Financial Express. He's written for The Economist. He is the author of uh, a book that came out a few years ago called Escape from the Benevolent Zookeepers, which is a, a, a collection of his best uh, columns. He has been called by Stephen Cohen of the Brookings Institution, India's leading economic journalist. And he's also the co-author of this recent uh, Cato co-published report on f economic freedom of the states of India, which looks at the varying levels of economic freedom within India, a report that we released recently in New Delhi. Please help me welcome Swami Iyer. Yeah. Well, when India became independent in 1947, the socialist government that took over was 
saw free trade as a tool of British colonialism to keep it to keep it poor. So the general idea was that we must have economic independence to buttress political independence. And the entire ethos of economic policy for three decades was more and more self-sufficiency and more and more public sector dominance. These were supposed to be the two basic principles which would achieve prosperity. Uh, it wasn't Soviet-style planning. It was a mixed economy. But at the same time, there were enormous licensing requirements of a very onerous nature. Uh, you couldn't produce anything without a license. You couldn't import a thing without a license. If you committed the sin of actually producing more than your licensed capacity, here you might have, your shareholders might applaud you. In India, you were in danger of going to jail, saying you exceeded your licensed capacity. Uh, everybody wasn't free to consume what he wanted because there were controls on what could be produced, what could be imported. I mean, in this particular way of life, prosperity was best achieved when nobody had the freedom either to produce or to consume what he wanted. There was supposed to be this lovely, big, benevolent government which would determine these particular things. Now, to begin with, this kind of planned approach gave India 3.5% growth. In the 1950s, that was regarded as fabulously good. I mean, under the British earlier on, it was hardly 1.2% a year. So they said, you know, I am a champion. I am doing 3.5%. A few years later, Singapore, Hong Kong, and the others began to do 7%. But once you become a self-anointed champion, it's very difficult to say, actually, I'm a dunce. So you turn around and say, well, actually, all those guys are different. Those are terrible neo-colonial puppets. But of course, what happened was that the neo-colonial puppets gradually became richer than the British master itself. I mean, Hong Kong and Singapore both exceeded British GDP, while India remained poor. OK, so this continued for about three decades. Indian tax rates, income tax went to 97.5% and so on. The idea was that this would abolish poverty. It did not abolish poverty at all. Poverty rates remained unchanged for about three decades. Then finally, in the 1980s, there was a switch. There was some partial grudging economic liberalization. Plus, there was a spending boom of the government. I mean, government spending rose at 18% a year. But a lot of this was financed by foreign borrowing. It was unsustainable, and so India basically went bust in 1991. It ran out of foreign exchange. So two, three things happened all together. First, India ran out of foreign exchange. Secondly, the Soviet Union, which in some sense was the admired model for, for so many, the Soviet Union was about to collapse. Simultaneously, in China, Deng Xiaoping had shown that, you know, the way forward is not more control, but being market-friendly development. So I think because of the, these, these three things then combined with another completely unpredictable event, Rajiv Gandhi of the Congress party was assassinated. So the, the, his party won that election with a minority government, but it no longer had the same baggage of saying, I have to justify all the socialist policies of my father and my, my, of my mother and grandfather. So there was some scope for some greater change. So it duly took place. So Mr. Narasimha Rao came in. He initiated these changes along with his finance minister, Manmohan Singh. Uh, obviously, India was taking a loan from IMF and World Bank. The opposition immediately said, ah, you fellows are in very deep water. The World Bank IMF path was taken by Latin America and Africa in the 1980s, and they had a lost decade. The same thing is going to happen here. You're going to find that there's no growth. 
you're going to find that if you open up, all our industries are going to be taken over by foreigners. We will, be, we will become neo-colonial slaves again. Almost every one of these predictions turned out to be wrong. Far from slowing down, after a couple of years to stabilize, Indian GDP growth took off. Uh, between 94 and 97, it averaged 7.5%. At that point, you know, it was so obviously this change had succeeded that even though all the opposition parties had said, we will reverse these policies when we come, came to power, they did come to power, they did not reverse the policies. Now, mind you, in India, there was no ideologue. There was no Maggie Thatcher, there was no Ronald Reagan. So liberalization was a very pragmatic business and chaotic business. Very often, two steps forward, one step back, two steps to the left, then to the right, you know. It juggled up and down, and yet, the inexorable logic, the fact that the thing model was succeeding, every new government that came followed roughly along the same path. And then finally, I mean, in the, there was a lot of trouble between 97 and 2003. You got the Asian financial crisis, but India survived without taking too much of a hit. Then you got, uh, there was a recession in 2001. There were two major droughts in India, which pulled the growth rate down. After 2003, world growth rose, India rose on that, and after that, India has averaged 8.5% growth. Uh, truly, the Asian elephant finally became the Asian tiger, uh, very unexpectedly. The Great Recession pulled growth down to 6.8%, and it's back to 8.5%. So it does look as though the cumulative impact of 20 years of hesitant, half-baked uh, reform, you reached a tipping point, and you have now achieved, it would appear, a sustainable rate of growth of 8, 8.5%. What are the key achievements of these 20 years? OK, there are these growth rates. India's per capita income is up from about $300 in 1990. It's, I calculated it's, this year it's likely to be $1,700. Very substantial improvement. It not only directly increased uh, incomes and employment, it also yielded a revenue boom, which has given the government lots of revenue for spending on welfare programs, on education, and other social sectors. Now, India's fast growth has not followed the standard Asian tiger model of using cheap labor for labor-intensive exports. In fact, Indian political parties, almost all of them, have a trade union wing. <laughs> so we have a situation, since all our parties are labor parties, there's agreement among all of them that we will not liberalize our labor laws in any way, so it's basically almost impossible to sack anybody. In these circumstances, you can't possibly go the labor-intensive route. It wasn't quite clear what route will India take. Surprisingly, India jumped into two new directions. One was instead of booming manufacturing exports, went into booming service exports, starting off with the computer software, and then a series of the other back end uh, of, from ordinary call centers to R&D, engineering services, legal services, medical services. On the other hand, on the manufacturers too, after some time, they took off in terms of exports, but they were not the labor intensive manufacturers. They were, again, brain-intensive manufacturers. One of the areas was, auto, was the auto sector, where you had a situation where, you know, in the auto industry, you need to bring out a new model every year and new improvements. And the general reckoning was that in, if Delphi would take three months to go from a new concept to re-engineering it, uh, doing the, the, the production model, getting rid of the glitches, Indian companies could do it in one to one and a half months. 
So this brain power was translated into this particular boom in uh, high, relatively high-tech uh, exports. I mean, in, in, this, uh, in the last year that took place, India's engineering exports are up 109%, to give an idea. Our pharmaceutical exports are extremely high. Uh, so in, in this India, uh, again, in a large number of other countries, including China, were driven mainly by export demand. In India, it was mainly domestic demand that drove the economy. Now, another example of this brain-intensive thing is that India became a world leader in now what's called frugal engineering. Frugal engineering meant, you know, not just reducing prices by 10 or 15 percent, but reducing them by 50, 60, 80 percent compared to what the going rate was. I think the best-known example of this probably is the nano car, so the, the $2,000 to $2,500 car produced by the Tata. There's a rival coming up from Bajaj Auto for $3,000. They're going to produce a car, but this one they claim will give you about 90 miles to the gallon. Uh, so, you know, revolutionarily cheap compared with the alternatives. Uh, India's telecom industry now has virtually the cheapest calls in the world, two cents a minute. And they still have operating margins of 20% or more. Uh, Narayan Hrudalai and Arvind Netralai are world-class heart and eye hospitals, uh, producing services at one-tenth to one-twentieth what you will get abroad, which has resulted now what's called uh, medical tourism into India. How else is India different? Well, China and some other Asian countries stand accused of deliberately rigging the exchange rates uh, to generate a trade surplus, which is mercantilist. India has not done this. There has been intervention by the Reserve Bank in markets, but the kind of lodestar they use, India has typically run a trade deficit. India's current account deficit in the last year about 2.8% of GDP. So you have some other countries saying, oh my God, we're having this huge wave of dollars inundating us, let us put capital controls to keep that money out. India is not one of those countries. India say, no, let the capital come. In fact, India has just partially liberalized its capital, uh, capital controls to allow more debt to come in. And this, again, is a more healthy and sustainable form of long-term development than the Chinese model of creating uh, a rigged exchange rate which just produces mercantilist surpluses. There is another Indian, I mean, in management journals, there's an Indian word called jugad, which I find is, is beginning to be circulated. The jugad in India started off, there was a farmer who wanted, you know, how do I get a cheap vehicle? And vehicles are expensive. So he said, you know, what about taking an irrigation pump? We'll strap it onto a steel frame, put four wheels on it, and that's a vehicle. Uh, easier said than done, but they actually did it. Uh, and it was the cheapest vehicle you could possibly get. So this general word, jigard, has just now come to mean the ability to innovate your way around all kinds of obstacles and find a way out of the problem. So it will apply to engineering. Uh, it applies on management principles, on how you manage a company. It very much applies, how do I manage politicians? How do I manage bureaucrats? So it includes all kinds of corruption. Uh, but the general way, the ability to overcome and get around models, I mean, this is on the one hand reflected, of course, in this frugal engineering. This frugal engineering couldn't have come about except with this constant innovation. This is not innovation in the sense of getting patents. It's in the innovation of everyday finding a more efficient way to do everyday jobs and getting very far ahead. Uh, it includes, I'm afraid, certain forms of 
uh, crony capitalism and certain forms of tax evasion. So it's not entirely a good thing. But it is this fundamental thing which pe gives people confidence that whatever the obstacles, we will probably manage to overcome them. Okay, yeah. Ian made a mention that you know, in 1991, there was the question of will Indian companies, after opening up, just be taken over by foreign companies, as was the fear. That has not held their own. Uh, on the contrary, Indian companies have gone abroad. And in this, Arvind Subramanian claims that India has become number one in terms of outward for, for foreign investment as a percentage of GDP. China has been making a lot of acquisitions abroad. It's well known. But as a percentage of their GDP, it's more like 0.6% of their GDP. In India's case, 0.9% of GDP. So I think uh, the more, you, you had a situation where Tata Steel took over Chorus uh, of Britain, which was six times its size. ArcelorMittal has become the biggest steel company in the world. The Tatas recently acquired Jaguar Land Rover. Ja I mean, that was a very famous company, but it was running under losses, first under the British, later under BMW it lost money, later under Ford it lost money, Tatas have taken it over. It's made a phenomenal profit in the, in the, in the last two years. So there's this new confidence. Uh, Bharti Airtel, for instance, has uh, taken over Zen's uh, companies in 14 companies in Africa, and there are many such companies. Uh, examples. So you have a situation where there are now Indian multinationals on a very large scale. Back in 1991, India was viewed as a bottomless pit for foreign aid. I mean, it was a large country, a lot of poor people, lots of money kept coming in. Now, in absolute terms, foreign, foreign aid inflows into India are still quite large, more than $6 billion. But this pales in comparison with the other inflows. Foreign investment of all kinds, portfolio and equity investments, about $51 billion. Commercial borrowings last year were $68 billion. Remittances from Indians abroad, $55 to $60 billion. So there is no aid dependence anymore. On the contrary, India has become a substantial aid donor. Uh, not so long ago, we signed $1 billion of aid package to Bangladesh. Prime Minister Manmohan Singh has just been to Africa and pledged $5 billion uh, of credits for them to purchase Indian goods of various kinds. So as you can see, uh, the bottomless pit for, for, for foreign aid is now becoming a substantial giver of foreign aid. Not in the same league as China, not at all, but still a very big change from what it used to be. Uh, India has gradually liberalized its foreign investment rules, but there are still significant barriers, especially in agriculture, retail, and finance. Uh, these are some of the reasons why flows into India have been well below flows into China. Nevertheless, most of the Fortune 500 companies are in India, not necessarily for manufacturing, but they are, a lot of them are there for uh, software, for back office services, and for R&D. Uh, India has, in fact, become a global hub for R&D, for pharmaceutical companies, uh, computer companies. You have a situation where, if you look at a company like IBM, I think it has more employees in India than in the USA. Accenture, a management company, has more employees in India than in the USA. Uh, Standard and Poor Moody's, they rate India, but I mean, a lot of their rating is now done by Indians <laughs> out, of, out of Indian cities. So, you know, th there are all these high-level skills all coming up. What about the future? Well, India is currently reaping a demographic dividend. And this is seen as its big advantage in the coming years over China. China, because of the one-child policy, had a situation where in the last 20, 30 years, uh, the proportion of children in the population fell, the proportion of workers in the workforce rose, 
And that kind of bulge in the proportion of workers in, in the total population automatically gives you a boost to GDP. But China is just about to finish. I mean, uh, it's now getting to the stage of rapid aging. And with rapid aging, once again, the proportion of dependence to the workforce is going to become a problem for them. India, on the other hand, is taking off. Uh, and there was an estimate by two economists in the IMF that uh, just the demographic dividend is going to add another 2% to GDP growth in India in the next 20 years, and has already been adding 1% to 2% in the last 20 years. So for these reasons, there are many economists, including Goldman Sachs, which predict that India will overtake China in GDP growth sometime in the next 10 years. Uh, I'm not sure it'll happen very, very soon, but it does appear to be on the cards. Okay, over and above that, there have been many, many criticisms of what has not been achieved. Main criticisms are some people say that, you know, these reforms, they have bypassed the poor. They have bypassed poor regions. And that in some poor regions, people have got so desperate that they are taking part in Maoist insurrections, which now affect almost a quarter of India's districts. So it's a not inconsiderable problem. Uh, if you look into the data, you find, I think, I have, you know, I find all of these uh, accusations ill-founded. First, the poor regions. I mean, James Lamont in the Financial Times came out with something saying, high growth fails to feed India's hungry, and talked about how the poor states had been bypassed. I just looked up the data. Six poor backward states, accounting for half of India's population, have in fact been growing higher than the national average in the last six years. In fact, India could not have increased its growth rate from 5.5 to 8.5, but for the fact that the poor states almost doubled their growth rates. So it is not that the poor states have been left behind. They are very much participants in this. And it's equally worth mentioning that if you'll, th there's been a jump in literacy. Now, literacy is something which is obviously most relevant for poor people. Uh, the literacy rate in the last two decades is up by about 23 percentage points, uh, roughly double of the improvement in the previous two decades. And the biggest jumps have taken place in these poorest backward states. And even faster than the increase in overall literacy has been the increase in female literacy. So as I said, there are a lot of poor, poor states where people are doing much better. Uh, there are data on what's happening to some of the poorest Indian castes. India has a caste system. The guys at the very bottom are called the Dalits or the oppressed. Uh, there, uh, there was a big survey done by Mr. Devesh Kapoor and others at uh, Wharton, at uh, University of Pennsylvania. And that came out very clearly as to how the condition of this poorest of Indian castes has improved dramatically in the last 20 years in this reform era. I mean, TV ownership is up from almost 0 to 45%. Cell phone ownership up from about 0 to 36%. Kids eating yesterday's leftovers down from 95% down to 16%. I mean, a series of these indicators. And the status parts of it is perhaps more important than the living standards. Uh, they say, you know, the, earlier on, the upper caste were not ever going to have food at the same table as these guys, or they would be seated separately at weddings. And those kinds of uh, social discrimination, that is substantially gone. Poverty, well, poverty has come down, official data say from 45% to about 32% between 1993 and 2009-10. Sujit Bhalla is one who's done work who will say that according to him, this 
data are a gross understatement. It has fallen much farther. I will merely tell you one thing that came out of one of the poverty surveys that they did of the Dalits, of that poor caste. They were surveying the fellow and saying, you know, what's your consumption of this, that, and, and he was saying, oh, I have nothing, this, that, and the other. Then it suddenly turned out that his family was going to have a daughter married into the member of one of the families doing the survey. At that point, he said, no, no, please tear up that sheet. I've told you a bunch of lies. I'm telling you I'm very badly off because I'm, I don't want to give up any of the benefits I'm going to get <laughs> as for being below the poverty line. So I mean, that, I think, is one anecdotal thing to say that if you ask poor people, are you poor, they will say absolutely. So you need to have better ways of measuring uh, how poor they actually are. Unfinished agenda, well, the Heritage Foundation's annual index of freedom ranks India at only 124th out of 183 countries. So yes, there's been liberalization, but still lots of problems. The Fraser Institute's uh, index ranks India as 87th out of 141, a little better. The Doing Business series of the World Bank puts India 134th out of 183 countries. India is almost the worst in the world in the ease of starting a business, 165th. Getting construction permits, 177th. And enforcement of contracts, 182nd out of 183 countries. <laughs> now, you know, some of the stuff tells you that, you know, okay, the problem is not just the economic conditions. There is a problem of governance. I mean, there's a sense in which, obviously, your police, your courts, your systems are not functioning if enforcement of contract is so pathetic. Within the social spending, I mean, a former prime minister said 85% of all the funds probably disappear, and only 15% actually reach the targeted audience. You have a situation we spend more and more money on schools, on health centers, and yet the data show when you do a survey that in half the schools no teaching is taking place. Most of the health centers, either the staff are not there, or if the staff is there, there are no medicines. There was another one done of government's doctors. I mean, the World Bank got a guy to sit down who himself was a medical doctor and took down what this particular government doctor is doing. The amount of time spent per patient was typically less than 60 seconds. In more than half the locations, the doctor didn't physically touch the patient to measure the temperature or pulse or anything. And in the view of the World Bank doctor, 50% of the medical recommendations of the doctor would have made the patient worse, not better. So I mean, this is the quality of service delivery. I mean, you obviously need an enormous improvement in this. Uh, at the same time, skill shortages of every kind are coming up. I mean, 9% growth does this. Uh, you'll find that even categories that used to be called unskilled labor, like construction labor and bricklayers and so on, suddenly there's a shortage of every kind of labor. I mean, the construction industry, one man told me, he said, since I can't get bricklayers, our solution now, this is Jugad. He said, our solution is we are doubling the size of the brick. So, so that's where you, you, you meet that particular problem. Yep. Okay, so I, we have problems of governance and of economic reform. I would say of the two, the problems of improving governance are probably even more at this particular point than economic reform. Because after all, economic reform has taken you to 8.5% growth, one of the best in the world. But on all your standards of indicators of governance, you're still much, much further below. So I think these are the areas for future action. Thanks. Thanks very much, Swami. Our next speaker will be Surjit Bala, one of the, the world's leading experts on growth and, and poverty. He is a managing director of Oxus Research and Investments, a New Delhi-based economic research 
asset management and emerging markets advisory firm. He has taught at the Delhi School of Economics and worked at the Rand Corporation and the Brookings Institutions. He's also been at both the Research and Treasury Departments of the World Bank and has also worked at, at Goldman Sachs. He is the author of a very important book, Imagine There's No Country, Poverty, Inequality, and Growth in the Era of Globalization. And he has been a member of many uh, government uh, committees on economic policy in India, including uh, the National Statistical Commission of India. Please help me welcome Surjit Bala. Thank you very much, Ian. Um, you know, Swami has covered uh, a lot of ground, and uh, I want to sort of give you a flavor of what it is to, one, work in India, uh, but secondly, and more importantly, what is driving some of the perceptions about India, which I find uh, may not be quite accurate. Um, so, two major conclusions, which I want to start off with to put things in perspective. Um, the first, uh, Swami mentioned that India will grow faster than China sometime in the next decade. Um, in 2007, I'd written that it would do so by 2010. And one leading commentator thought it was completely outrageous, uh, completely unlikely to be true, completely contentious, and basically dismissed it completely out of hand. Um, I'm pleased to say that Goldman Sachs and everybody else is following. I don't think it will be um, as far down as the rest of this decade. I think I missed it by maybe a couple of years. But to understand uh, what is happening in India, I think that forecast uh, is important. Whether I'm right or wrong is not so important, but I do think that's somewhere in the elements of the Indian story. The other very important element in the Indian story, and I think I do not know of any country in the world where a similar story emerges, is the amount of ideology um, that pervades policymaking and pervades intellectual, politically correct discussion about what is happening in India. Um, we, you know, Swami mentioned very accurately that we had economic reforms in uh, 1991, major reforms. Uh, you couldn't stand in the street without first getting the permission of the government. Uh, today you can do that and a lot more. But there are vast sections of uh, the intellectual uh, populace as well as uh, the leading political party in India, the Congress, which believes uh, that these reforms have done precious little uh, to do to the economic growth in India and particularly to alleviate poverty. And um, the, clearly growth has happened. Um, that they can't, can't deny and sometimes claim success for that, but they say that basically the, the story is that the rich have gotten richer, the poor have gotten poorer, and they find support from uh, various organizations, including the one who I worked at a long time, uh, the World Bank. So I want to, those are the, if you have that in mind, I think the Indian story uh, becomes a lot more flavorful and a lot more interesting. So. The, there are three puzzles, so I will, I will talk about growth, I will then talk about inequality uh, and poverty and the middle class, and I'll end with a little bit about some of the 
future prospects. Um, on growth, the record is as follows that from 1950 to 1980, uh, Indian, grew, Indian GDP growth was somewhere around 35 to 4% per annum. Uh, from 1980 to 2003, uh, both before the reforms of 91 and after the reforms of 91, the Indian growth rate was 5.5% per annum. And from 2003 onwards, for eight years, the growth rate has averaged more than 8%. So the first puzzle. How come Indian growth rate suddenly went up from 3.5%, to 5%, 5.5% per annum in the 1980s? This is a story of uh, <clears throat> the dog that did not bark. Uh, second, how come Indian growth rate, after the introduction of reforms, major far-reaching reforms, by any definition of the term, and by any definition of the term, suddenly after three years of 7.5% growth rate, collapsed back to 5.5%. All the mother of all reforms and the growth rate stays exactly the same. And the third, how come the growth rate accelerated from 2003-04 onwards without seemingly any reforms? So what the hell is going on? First, 1980s, the, the growth rate uh, accelerating from 35 to 5%, what 5.5%, what many authors uh, forget, is that the 1970s was a disastrous decade for every part of the world, including the US. We had the oil prices rising, dub, uh, quadrupling in 1973, doubling in 1979, and so on and so forth. So basically, the whole world collapsed, uh, and growth rates in the entire world collapsed in the 1970s, and so they did collapse in India. Uh, from about 4.5% to something like uh, 3%. So the average came down lower. So the acceleration was something from 4% to something like 5.5% over a period of 15 years. And that explanation or that uh, acceleration is completely explained by something we learned as graduate students uh, about the reallocation of labor from low productivity agriculture to high productivity industry. So just a simple transformation or movement of labor from low productivity agriculture to high productivity industry will give you an acceleration growth. It can't give you that forever. For example, the share of GDP, uh, share of agriculture and GDP in India today is down to 17%. So even if it were to go down to 15% or 12%, um, there isn't much add. But at that time, at the time of independence, uh, agriculture was something like 65 to 70% of GDP. So a simple little calculation. So that, in my view, takes care of the 1980s. Uh, in 1991, we did introduce the reforms. And in 1996, we, and what, as uh, Swami rightly said, we moved to 7.5%. And what did our Indian policymakers do? They panicked. They said, India is overheating, because we'd never seen this before. 7.5% growth rate, three years in a row, this is certainly a sign of overheating. And we basically raised interest rates, tightened monetary policy, and raised interest rates such that real interest rates Real interest rates in starting 96, 97, because inflation collapsed to 4% from 8%. Interest rates went up by 4%. Basically, bottom line is real interest rates in India were 13%. Real. Savings rates were 12.5%. That is, deposit, saving deposit rates 
were 12 and a half percent in 98-99. Okay, so that killed the economic growth. We came down to five and a half percent. And starting, so now what explains the acceleration of Indian growth, the story of this decade, et cetera, from four, five and a half percent to eight and a half percent on a pretty sustained basis. One argument is rising tide lifts all boats. We know that world growth expanded in the uh, 2000s, and India went along with it. And if you will, a year ago, two years ago, many people were saying, you, just you watch. India will get back to 6.5%, 7%. The World Bank, et cetera, et cetera, all those people were forecasting, merrily forecasting this decline because they looked at a very simple addition and didn't look at the big picture, um, and they were proven wrong. So what does explain India's growth rate uh, acceleration? Very simply, between 1999 and 2003, real interest rates in India, by active government policy now, it was a different government, maybe that caused it, maybe the interest rates were too high, that caused it, came down by 500 basis points in the space of five years. Now, in the US, you get a 25 basis point increase one way or the other, and we haven't even got a 25 basis point increase in uh, the Fed funds rate, but people are talking about it, and there are millions and zillions of pages and trades being made on the basis that maybe there might be a 25 basis point increase uh, in uh, interest rates in the US, and correctly so, and in India. And this is the, the funny aspect about India. There's a 500 basis point decline in real rates, and no one has talked about it. Because, you know, investment, savings, growth, it's not a function of interest rates. It's a function of something else, world growth maybe, or something else, but not a function of interest rates. Well, I find it, very simply, um, this explanation uh, does work, and what else goes along with it? Savings rates in India in 2002, in 1990 uh, was somewhere around 21, 22% of GDP. Say investment rates were about two percentage points higher, 24% of GDP for a long time period. Growth rate, you can do your calculations, whether the traditional ones of ICOR, et cetera, stayed the same, 5.5% uh, per annum. Between 2002-3 and 2007-8, investment rates had increased by 15% of GDP, from 23 to 38%. Now, does that explain Indian growth better than uh, world growth went up and world growth went down? I think so. Savings rates also went up. So that, if you will, concludes the story about India and Indian growth. It's, <clears throat> it's something that was, if you will, almost inevitable given that we had proceeded on the path of reforms and had the initial jump up in growth. There is, if you will, a saying or one way to perceive, about in, uh, perceive India, especially uh, in the context of China, because which is the other country that really has defied all economic forecasts is China, and India seemingly has defied all economic forecasts. So, what explains growth in China and what explains growth in India? In China, growth occurs because of the state. In India, growth occurs despite the state. 
And that explains why, without any reforms whatsoever in the last six, seven years, the growth rate has sustained itself. And if you will, the, we are in a, what I believe, in a very sweet spot of growth. Many, not many countries have had it, but the countries that have had it are not few. There are about eight to 15 countries that at some point or another get into the sweet spot of growth, and nothing affects it. And all of those who played baseball or cricket know that a sweet spot is something you don't feel, and boom, the ball is gone. And that is what is happening. It's, it's got into a process that I think is very, very much irreversible. I will add one other element to this uh, in terms of the reforms in 91 and in terms of what is happening, why the growth is self-sustaining. And this is also not a popular explanation of growth, but historically, if one looks at it, it historically, I'm, and by historically, I mean 300, 400 years for various other countries, um, it is the middle class. That once the middle class gets to be somewhere around 8 to 10%, beyond a certain threshold point, uh, it begins to matter and influence policy decisions. And obviously, uh, it, uh, the policy decisions, if you will, are in the direction of uh, reforms. And we can go into why that is very obvious. Um, and that's what happened in India. So if one does congratulate uh, the present Prime Minister Manmohan Singh and the Congress government that brought about the reforms in 91. But in a certain sense, if you will, in my belief, it was inevitable. And it was inevitable because the middle class at 91, 92 had reached something like 8% of the population. Um, and it's continuing today. In India, the middle class is somewhere close to 45% of the population. And if you will, each 10 percentage points of the growth of the middle class adds about 0.5% uh, uh, to GDP growth. So I think we still have uh, some future to go to. Okay. That's on the growth side. Now we come to inequality. And again, the reference is to China. China inequality has zoomed uh, from something, a genie of something like 0.25 to a genie almost double that amount. In India, therefore, it had to be the case that inequality has increased because we had a high growth. And there is a false Kuznets curve that shows that high growth uh, at, at certain periods of time in uh, countries' progress along, along the inverted U uh, leads to higher inequality. Uh, and so therefore, it must be the case uh, that in India, inequality has increased. The rich have gotten richer, etc. What's the record? Well, if you look at nominal inequality in India, uh, it turns out that the genie has gone up from something like 0.3 to 0.37, which is an increase of almost um, seven, about 20% nominal uh, inequality. And in developed countries, we look at nominal inequality because there aren't any structural changes. In developing countries, where the rural areas have, in India's case, 70% of the population, urban areas have 30% of the population, and where the price level in urban and rural areas is about a two to one. So things cost about twice as much in urban areas as they cost in, in rural areas, actually 60%. Um, you have to control for relative price levels 
in the two areas. Once you do that, it turns out that inequality in India has stayed absolutely constant between 1983 and 2007-8. The genie has stayed absolutely flat. Indeed, if one goes a little bit beyond the genie and looks at the growth rates of individual quintiles or deciles or percentiles, it turns out that the bottom 15% has grown the fastest. So it's a boat. That is, the bottom 15% grows the fastest, then it declines, the middle grows the least, and then it rises, the top 10, 15% also grow, but not as fast as the bottom 15%. So no matter what indicator you use, it turns out that inequality in India, if anything, has improved rather than deteriorated. Then we come to poverty. And here the record, so we have had, let me see, we've got inequality <coughs> staying constant. This is all official data. Uh, UBHH, untouched by human hands. Uh, we've got growth data, that is per capita income, growing from something like 3% per annum to something like 6% per annum, doubling in per capita growth rates because population growth rate has really declined. And you've got that poverty decline in India is rock constant at only about 0.8 to 1% per year. So that is the headcount ratio in poverty declines by one percentage point a year from 1983 onwards. How can that be? Well, <clears throat> there are two ways this can be. One is something that the World Bank has perfected. And you know that the poverty line was a uh, dollar a day in 1985. Then it became dollar eight cents a day in 1993. And now it's become $1.25 a day in 2005. Now, these are all nominal PPP dollars in the different years. One simple calculation will show you that the new poverty line based on um, 2005 PPP actually is an increase in the real poverty line, at least for India, of something like 40%. So in other words, the new poverty line, according to which in 1983, poverty in India was 43% of the population. And in 2005, poverty in India is 45% of the population. No difference. All of this is happening. The world has changed. We've got rocket scientists and jugaloo scientists, etc., in India. Everything has changed. But poverty in India is constant as a northern star. So one explanation is a convenience of changing the poverty line, increasing the poverty line. And the other, and the two things both operate in tandem, is that Indian survey data has become worse and worse over the years. Now, we in India, we, if you will, invented um, large sample surveys, certainly for developing countries. And we were the pioneers. And in 1985, 87, the average per capita consumption, according to the surveys, was something like 80% of the average per capita consumption according to national accounts. In 2009-10, that has halved. That is, the survey now captures only 42% of 
the national accounts consumption, which means, one, that amongst all surveys done over the last 60 years in the entire world, this is about the third worst survey done by any country. Second, it has implications. Because if you're capturing only half the average consumption, you basically meaning that you, the growth of individuals is half of what it should be. Or the level per capita income and per capita consumption levels is what it should be. If you do the calculations correctly, and assuming that survey capture is somewhere close to 80%, you get that poverty in India, according to the new poverty line, is somewhere close to 15%, from something close to 45% back in, um, in 1983. So that explains, if you will, um, the, the poverty side. Now for a little bit of what is going to happen in, in the future, and I'm finishing up. Um, what is a big story uh, for India in the future? The biggest story, I think, emerging, and this has not been noted uh, by either the, the poverty industry or the population industry or anybody else, or most people, sorry, not anybody else, is that fertility levels in India, average fertility levels, including the most backward states, the forward states, the progressive states, etc., will reach a replacement level of 2.1 child per woman by 2015. In the next five years, we will reach replacement levels of fertility. And the original government target was of reaching fertility levels uh, replacement levels was 2026. And if you will, most data coming out now suggest that it is going to be very close to 2015. And this, I think, uh, is, will, have, will have and is having radical implications. Um, one implication is, apart from the demographic dividend, and I'm not a big fan of the de demographic dividend, uh, and I have to say that otherwise you can't have two Indians or three Indians agreeing on everything. Um, but it really has to do with the fact that women in India historically and at present have a very low labor force participation rate or did have a very low labor force participation rate as late as 2000. Only about 15% of urban women worked. Because of education and various other considerations, which one would suspect should have the natural consequence, the labor force participation rate in India is now close to 34%, especially if you take into account that more and more women between the ages, our labor force is defined as the age of 15 to 60, that more and more girls between the ages of 15 to 22 are now going to school. So adjusting for all of that, it's as high as 35% of the, 34% of the population and should reach the historical worldwide developed country norm of somewhere around 55 to 60% uh, of the population. And this is, if you will, the huge, huge advantage that India has. And I will now conclude with that. If you want to look at summarizing Indian growth rate and, and Chinese growth rate, let's go back to uh, Econ 101. Capital growth in India is now at 10% per annum. Capital growth in India and in China is at 10% per annum. So rate of growth of capital 
their investment weight is a lot higher, their stock is capital is also higher, their investment weight is somewhere around 45% or 50%. So therefore, capital, as far as capital is concerned, India and China have exactly the same rate of growth of capital. In terms of labor, China's labor force is growing at something like 0.4% per annum. India's labor force, without accounting for uh, increased labor force participation of women, is growing at 2.4% per annum. So that automatically gives you, if you will, 0.8% extra growth in India on those two bases alone. Third, last but not least, is total factor productivity growth, which in China, because of its deeply undervalued exchange rate, has averaged something like 5.5% per annum, and in India has averaged 3% per annum. This thing is going to converge. Not that we are going to go up much, but China's TFPG, because of the very considered and relevant and desired pressures for China to appreciate its exchange rate, their TFPG is going to decline to something like 3% per annum. Therefore, it's, it's a, if you will, it's a no-brainer that India's growth rate will exceed that of China and be at a level of 8 to 10%. Um, 8 to 10% in India, and 6 to 7 or 8% in China over the next five years. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sergit. Uh, it's my pleasure now to introduce our last speaker, Arvind Panagaria, who is a professor of economics and the Jagdish Bhagwati professor of Indian political economy at Columbia University. He's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He has previously been the chief economist at the Asian Development Bank and a professor of economics and co-director at the Center for International Economics at the University of Maryland. He's worked at the World Bank, the IMF, the WTO, and uh, other agencies related to the United Nations. He is the author of a book that came out just a, a few years ago, published by Oxford University Press called India, the Emerging Giant, which has really become a reference work on how much India has achieved in terms of reform and what, has, what it has left on its agenda. He's written several other books on trade, published uh, widely in the leading economic uh, journals, and he writes a monthly column in the Economic Times. Uh, Professor Panagaria has been a tough critic of the current government, especially for the ongoing lack of reforms there. Please help me welcome back uh, Arvind Panagaria. Thank you, Ian. It's a great pleasure to be back here. I think we uh, did a big book launch here two years ago, which was very successful. Uh, you know, it's bad enough to come after Swami, uh, uh, who can tell you all about India within 15 minutes, which he did, uh, but not to come also after Sujit. Uh, uh, so I'm not sure what else uh, is left to say. Uh, but I'll try. Uh, Sujit, first of all, to put your mind to rest, actually, and give you a hand. Uh, 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 you know, India already exceeded, India's growth rate has already exceeded China's. Uh, if you take the uh, uh, GDP measure uh, that the rest of the world uses, which is GDP at market prices or GDP at consumer prices, so to say, and if you take the calendar year 2010, 
uh, India generally measures GDP, reports its GDP uh, at, at factor prices, which is at producer prices. Uh, uh, and so it, its growth rate looks more like 8.5, 8.6%. It also uh, uh, reports it according to the financial year, uh, which goes from April to March 31. Uh, but if you, you can go back I mean, there are data on, on mar uh, GDP at, at, at consumer prices or at market prices, and there is data by quarter, so you can calculate 2010 GDP, and India edges out China in 2010 by that measure. Uh, India is to 10.4, I think, China is 10.3, so technically uh, it's, it's already done, so congratulations. Uh, but let me take a different cut to this. You know, I think you'd heard about the past, so I'll, I'll try to really stick to uh, the, the, the uh, assignment I was given, which is to talk a little bit about the future. So, so I'll start out there. Let me say one thing there. I mean, I'm firm believer of the fact that in the ultimate, uh, for especially for the poor countries, uh, the, 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 the world economy is, is less of an issue. Um, uh, it, it is its own policies. And the big thing that has changed in India's case is its own policies. Um, uh, I, I think uh, Surjit underplayed the India's reforms a bit, in my view. Uh, uh, there was a big set of reforms that happened in the first half of the 1990s. Uh, that was under Prime Minister Narasimha Rao. And then there was another big boot of reforms from 1998 to 2004 that was under Atal Bihari, Prime Minister Atal Bihari And I really think that in the end is the accumulation of these reforms uh, 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 to which the reaction was perhaps with a bit of a lag that growth uh, in 2003-04 shifted to about 8.5%. No, having said that, so I mean that's that's the context. I, I mean, and and reason I believe why the country's policies are really most important. I mean, you can see that the global economy uh, after the financial crisis actually uh, took a big, big hit. Neither India nor Chinese economy took the same kind of hit. Uh, uh, there are, you know, often the the, the, the I mean. Part of the explanation had to do with the with the regulation of the banks with being being uh, such that India, you know, the, the financial hit was 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 smaller, but also it continued to grow at six and a half to eight percent because its its own policies were generally in place. And remember that you know the world market is very large, even if it's not growing, but your policies are good are are in place. Uh, you can displace somebody else. I mean, in, in terms of getting uh, the, the world market share, uh, you, you you can actually outdo the other countries, even if the market itself is not growing. So, so there is scope. And, and so it, I, I think it's ultimately your own policies are extremely important. So let me say that much. I want to talk about the future. Now, India has been growing by all you know, accounts. We've, we've heard in the last eight years about 8 to 9%. That is the growth rate in real rupees. Uh, what is actually much less appreciated is the fact that during these eight years, India, uh, India's inflation rate has been much higher than the inflation rate in the United States. What that means is that in re and, and the nominal exchange rate has not shifted a whole lot. What that means is that in real terms, the rupee has appreciated. And, and if you take that real appreciation into account, actually, the growth rate in the last eight years, in real dollars, that is, has been an astounding, astonishing 13%. I've done the numbers. Uh, that's what it comes out. In nominal dollars, India grew in these eight years about 16.5%, 3.5% per year. You can take out US inflation, which is overestimate over rather than underestimate 13% of growth in real dollars. This is a phenomenal growth. I think there's a good case because of the savings rate, which is 35%. 
because of the demographic changes, the workforce is going to continue to grow quite rapidly in India. Uh, so both the inputs, capital as well as labor, are going to continue to grow at a pretty fast pace. So those are the two ingredients. But the third one is that Indian economy today is extremely competitive. Uh, it, it, it is very open, in, uh, except in agriculture, where it, it protection remains quite significant. But if you take industry, you take services, it is very, very open, very competitive. You have to compete against the best in the world, whether you operate in the domestic market or you operate in the world market. Either way, you've got to compete, and you've got to be on your toes. That's a big change, I think, that India has experienced. Uh, and India is also starting way inside the technology, the, the global technology frontier. So there's a whole lot to catch up. So uh, you're competitive, you're still uh, at a level of technology which, which, which gives you huge scope to catch up. Your uh, capital is growing rapidly, your labor is growing rapidly, uh, you are going to continue to grow. So I make the conservative uh, assumption, let's say that India in the next 15 years, so till 2025, will continue to grow at at least 10% uh, per year in real dollars. What does that imply? That implies Indian economy from 1.75 trillion today, the latest year for which we have the data, will go to 7 trillion by 2025. Now, that places India third largest in the world economy. This is going to be a sea change. So not only the center of gravity of the global economy is going to at least you know, either become multipolar, you could say, but certainly shift a little bit uh, in favor of Asia because it's Japan, China, and India, these three very large economies. Uh, but uh, uh, also uh, within India, there's going to be massive changes. A $7 trillion uh, uh, GDP uh, with the population forecast by the United Nations uh, in 2025 at about 1.4 billion uh, implies a per capita income of about $5,000 in 2010-11. So we are talking of the, in real terms, uh, in, in today's prices, the, GDP, the per capita income in India will reach about five thousand uh, dollars that of course has enormous implications for you know poverty as we define it currently will certainly be history uh, perhaps you know even poverty line itself will, will will by that time be shifted up considerably and still will see the poverty rate to be much lower than what it is today so I, I think you know from the futuristic point of view uh, big changes now there's a second very, very important change that is going to happen uh, where India is going to be extremely important is demographic, but not the aspect that people traditionally uh, emphasize, but the following one. In the next 15 years, uh, 20, by 2025, uh, the developed countries will be minus about, com compared with uh, about 2010, minus 37 million people in the, in the age group 20 to 49. China will be minus 67 million people uh, in the age group 20 to 49. India will be plus 131 million people in the age group 20 to 49. Big change. That's a global change. Uh, you know, so, you, you know, if you think that there are too many people like me around you today, uh, you really have not seen anything. Um, uh, there's going to be a dramatic shift in the years to come. So India will actually become a very large supplier, much larger than today, of the global workforce. Um, now, I want to step back what, 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 what kind of that means for India itself, actually, because you know, th there is this demographic uh, dividend or, or whatever, but, but there is also a demographic burden of India, uh, or certainly the burden of India 
arising out of this demographic, sh demographic shift that is going to happen in the global workforce, uh, to which India currently is paying zero attention. And this is where I think you know, what Ian said about my being very critical of the present government comes into play. Um, but, but before I get there, very quickly, I want to give, give a little bit more uh, uh, structure to the, the, this problem that India is going to face in the next 15 years. You know, so what I've told you right now so far is, is all very rosy and all. But there is a dark side to India's growth, uh, 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 which, which will continue unless corrective action is taken, which the present government seems you know, completely oblivious to. Certainly, I mean, it's, it, I, I don't think intellectually it's oblivious, but politically it's acting oblivious, uh, which is the following. Now, when countries transform uh, from poor economies, especially labor-abundant economies, which is what India is, uh, to a more modern or, or to, 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 to a, a, a richer economy, uh, almost always uh, one thing that happens is the share of agriculture in the GDP declines. That has happened in India. So you know, even if you take from 1990 to today, uh, the share of agriculture, which declined from about 30% in the GDP to about less than 15% today, so it's been cut in half. Another feature of the, 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 this kind of growth process, whether you look at Korea and Taiwan in the 60s, 70s, whether you look at China very, more recently, whether you look actually the US in the 19th century, uh, is that when agriculture shrinks in this way, industry grows very rapidly. Manufacturing in particular grows extremely rapidly. And what that growth in manufacturing typically does, and labor-intensive manufacturing, what it does is pulls large part of the labor force out of agriculture into manufacturing. So you see the transformation, not just in output shares, but you also see the transformation in where the people are employed. Uh, and it, it generates, I mean, that sort of growth then generates gainful employment, uh, rising wages, uh, and, and declining poverty, obviously. Um, the same kind of transformation really, you know, although agriculture has declined, as I mentioned to you, on the employment and industry side has not happened in India. The share of manufacturing in the GDP uh, in India has been sitting constant, uh, about 16 or 17% of the GDP. If you take the industry, uh, about 25, 26%. Uh, and what that, and, 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 and must, much more importantly, uh, if you look at the share of uh, labor force employed in agriculture, that has declined very little. So you know the data I have uh, uh, is, is from 93-94 to 2004-05. Uh, 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 the employment share goes down from something like 61-62% of agriculture to about 54-55%. So very little decline in the employment share. In fact, the absolute number of people employed in agriculture today is still rising. So the total number of workers. So if, you know, workers to land ratio is still on the rise uh, in, in India in agriculture. That's rather bad news. I mean, you, you really need this transformation to also pull the workers out of agriculture into industry, uh, which really has not been happening. Well, uh, there are good reasons for it. Uh, uh, there were a lot of constraints before. Uh, the uh, small-scale industry reservation was one. I'll not go into the details, but today, uh, looking forward, uh, 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 there are a bunch of uh, problems. One is in the labor markets that I think Swami certainly kind of alluded to, uh, uh, which is that uh, uh, there are a lot of labor regulations, actually, which are industry unfriendly. Um, uh, 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 one of them being that uh, if you are an employer of 100 workers or more on a regular basis, virtually under no circumstances can you fire the workers, even if you actually uh, uh, go bankrupt. Uh, you, you really cannot fire the workforce. So you, you have to use the profits from your other operations and still feed that workforce. 
That is uh, 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 the kiss of death, actually, for the labor-intensive industry. For industries like automobiles, uh, uh, capital-intensive industries, or services industries where this law doesn't even apply, actually, uh, this is not a big issue. Because you know, automobile labor costs are about 7% of the total costs. Uh, you can find ways to, to deal with the worker problem. But if you are clothing industry, uh, if you are footwear industry or light consumer industry, where you employ a lot of workers, labor costs happen to be 70 to 80% of your total costs, you have a problem. Uh, your margins are thinner, uh, and if, if labor troubles come around, uh, you cannot fire the workers. You, you know, for a variety of reasons, uh, you, you may need to actually lay off the workers. Uh, if, if you expect you can't do it, uh, you're not going to get into that activity. So you compare India to China, India to Bangladesh, India to Sri Lanka, uh, you don't get large firms in the, in the labor-intensive sectors. Uh, the factories, clothing factories in Bangladesh, Clothing factories in Sri Lanka are way larger than the clothing factories in India. Uh, and of course, with China, we should not even be comparing. So this is a, you know, you, you really need the labor market reforms in India. Uh, you know, I, I think Swami seemed pessimistic will not happen. Uh, I think, you know, in 1980s, there were a lot of things that happened subsequently. I thought would never happen in India. They have happened. And so I remain optimistic that labor reform will happen also. There is also issues of labor land acquisition. In India, land acquisition laws are archaic also. Uh, the, the original law uh, put in place in something like 1892 under the British, uh, which basically refuses to compensate the landowners, mostly farmers, uh, uh, for, for, uh, for, for the price, for the market price. In effect, they end up, you know, the, the, under the eminent law uh, or, or something similar to the, the you know, eminent domain uh, acquisition, land, the governments try to acquire land for the cheap. That's not on. I think you know, ultimately that law needs to change as well. Uh, now, uh, then there are issues of infrastructure, et cetera, uh, where, again, I'm pretty optimistic on things like roads, ports, airports. Um, the basic formula is understood. Uh, so it's a matter of getting the act together and, and moving on, which is happening, so, so I'm not so concerned. Electricity is perhaps the more uh, difficult area of reform, uh, which has actually come to a standstill. 2003, there was a, an incredibly uh, forward-looking act passed. But since then, the reform has been um, uh, since then the reform has been actually uh, stalling, uh, uh, in some, some even including some reversals under the present government. So uh, that's where I'm a little more concerned actually than in, in the other infrastructure areas. Uh, but the most important one, in a way, uh, 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 is, is 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 the one that uh, still doesn't get enough attention. Um, and that is the higher education system. This connects back to my earlier point about the demographic um, uh, change that is going to happen, where you'll get this massive entry of the labor, I mean, massive expansion of the population in India between 20 to 49 years of age. And, and so, you know, over the next 15 years, there will be large cohorts of people uh, passing through the age group 20 to 24. And this is where education becomes, higher education becomes extremely important. Uh, India is already facing these skilled labor shortages, um, uh, uh, and, and uh, uh, this is going to get uh, much more serious down the road. What has been happening? If you look at you know some very simple uh, evidence, um, you know Indian uh, higher education uh, system had a very good head start. Uh, the university system, the the you know Western style universities began in the 1850s. Uh, first three universities were founded around uh, somewhere during the 1850s, and the rest of the history is uninterrupted. Higher education has gone on. 
China, in contrast, actually under Mao, uh, between 1966 and 1968, under Cultural Revolution, completely decimated its higher education system. It's completely destroyed, actually, literally so. Uh, there was no higher education left. They started rebuilding in the early 1980s. Now, look at the figures. So the, 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 commonest ratio, the com commonest indicator we use is the gross enrollment ratio, which basically is the proportion of, uh, the proportion of those who are in colleges to the college-going age population, something like 20 to 24. That in China in 2000 was 6%. In India, it was 10%. Today, China has zoomed past us. India is today about 13%. China is 23%. This is just phenomenal. You know, I'm sorry, I don't even dream that India will match that kind of rapid expansion. But something half of that needs to happen. Unless that happens, we've got a big problem. You know, already, you've got people in agriculture who are not being easily moved out into industry because labor-intensive industry is constrained by the labor laws. Uh, and then, at the same time, you haven't got the university. So forget the quality. I mean, there are issues of quality, of course, also. But the quantity issue itself is so incredibly important. It, India needs to expand universities left and right at a very, very fast pace. I mean, one estimate is that you know, if you are going to read, so the government is very ambitious, of course. It's, oh, you know, by 2025, we need the gross enrollment ratio to go to 30%. Well, according to one estimate, that means another 1,500 universities out there. Now, the government has no sense here of what it will take. Because he says, oh, very proudly, in the next year, we are going to open 30 new universities. But that's too slow. They just cannot, the government just doesn't have the resources. I mean, today, about 300,000 Indian students are studying outside India between the United States, Canada, Australia, and uh, um, UK. 300,000. These, even if you take the conservative assumption that each of them is spending $20,000 a year on their uh, education, this is $6 billion being spent uh, by these students. That's more than the current budget of the government of India on higher education. So, you know, the, 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 the ability of the government actually to open the universities uh, is, is very, very limited. Fine, it should do it. I mean, I have no problem with that. You know, if they want to expand these, that's good. But they need to open the door to the private universities much wider. Today, you know, opening a private university in India is not a piece of cake at all. Uh, in fact, you need a government legislation. So if either the state legislative assembly has to pass a legislation to create a university, or the central parliament has to pass a legislation to start a university. Uh, that, that already kind of puts a, such a huge barrier that most entrepreneurs cannot even dream of crossing. Only the very you know, aggressive one and the determined ones are able to cross that uh, uh, kind of barrier. So as a result, private universities are growing at a very tiny little pace. That has to change. You know, basically, you need a set of rules that 1 to 10 satisfy these conditions, this much land you're required, this much investment you'll have to make up front, you know, whatever regulations you want to put in place. But you know, just transparently create your conditions, and anybody who satisfies the conditions should be able to open a university. Uh, nowhere in the world you know, these days do you require legislation. Uh, and, and so that, that is my kind of last point, that higher education is really something that India needs to reform in a big way. Uh, there is some noises by the current HRD minister, but that's just not adequate. Uh, uh, India needs a much more massive uh, uh, reform of the higher education system. Only then it can really fulfill its burden of uh, uh, serving it's itself as well as the rest of the world of you know this this demographic change that are going to, that that we are going to witness thanks very much mm.
Thanks very much, Arvind. We're very tight on time, but I think we will take just a couple of questions. Uh, when you have a question, please uh, wait for the microphone and identify yourself and your affiliation, please. Take a question right here. Derek Scissors, the Heritage Foundation. Uh, I think I want to challenge Sergit because you're, you put a lot of emphasis on interest rates, but you have a very positive view of the sustainability of, of Indian growth in the absence of, of fresh reform initiatives. I, I don't mean to read too much into your talk, but that's how I interpreted uh, what you said. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But right now we have a period where India has sustained negative real interest rates. And no particular, you know, when, when, when uh, RBI finally gets it, sort of catches up to the inflation curve, the Indian industry screams that you know, interest rates are too high, which is absurd. So on the capital side, I mean, isn't India just hasn't India in the last couple of years, not, I don't mean to imply this to more than the last few years, but in the last couple of years, hasn't India just substituted leveraging for reform? And in the same way that you were talking about interest rates being crucial to growth, what we now have is an unsustainable interest rate environment for growth. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Very quickly, the, the question of whether we've had, and you know, capital investment has really declined, so this is a double whammy against my view, uh, if you believe that we have negative real interest rates. Borrowing rates in India today are about 16 17%. Inflation in India is about 8%. So by no stretch of the imagination do we've got negative. If you look at the equivalent of the Fed funds rate, the overnight rate, that's uh, about 7%, and inflation has fallen from something like 16% to now 8%. So, but I think as far as investors are, investment is concerned, it's your, the rate at which you can borrow, and that's very high and very real. So I think it fits. Um, and associated with that, I did, um, the, the real interest rate reforms were brought in when the real interest rate did decline between 1990 and 2004 uh, during the Bajpai regime, and that was the major reform that they brought about in the financial system. So, you know, you have to know which interest rate. Now, actually, as it turns out, um, there's a newsletter that I'll be producing on this, whether a central bank is ahead of the curve or behind the curve, and I'll be happy to send you that. But it, the facts are just not there. Take a question there, and then there. Atul Singh, I'm the founder and uh, editor-in-chief of Fair Observer. It's a new journal which shall, which shall be covering global issues. We are based out of Washington, D.C. And I'll pick up on two comments, uh, one by Arvind and one by Swami. And Swami, you mentioned uh, Devesh, who's a good friend of mine. And we've talked not about a problem of, a problem of governance, but a crisis of governance. It's because I resigned from the IPS on the grounds of corruption. And uh, I can say that when it comes to deliv delivery at the grassroots, whilst the private sector has been performing spectacularly well, the state has been failing its population. So my question is, how far can India succeed its current economic growths, considering the complete collapse of governance, at least in certain parts of the country? And I'll pick up on land acquisition mentioned by you, which you mentioned is 1892. And I would say the entire government of India machinery, and I had to implement it, is woefully outdated. The Police Act is 19th century. The Indian Evidence Act is 19th century. The Indian Penal Code is 19th century. And we, we basically implement the system through Jugar. And that is not rule of law. That is order, but not law. So how do we continue to create a modern society in the huge contradiction you have in India today? Thank you. 
Let's collect. Uh, let's collect another question from up front. Well, again, and Cato, uh, how has the economic record of the past twenty years affected Indian politics? Has it strengthened the case for good policy, or has it strengthened the case for increased redistribution? Okay. Who wants to begin, Swami? Uh, let's take the second one. The second one first. Uh, I, I said there was a feeling after about 10 years of reform, they said some of the backward states are not doing well, they're being bypassed. The good news is in the last five, six years, many of those backward states have started growing faster than the national average. In fact, you know, Surjit may say interest rates does it all. I say the reason that India jumped from 5.5 to 8.5 is that the poorer states jumped from 4 to almost 9. Uh, in some cases, I mean, there are various reasons why it happened. In some cases, you had a situation where you had chief ministers coming from the lower castes saying the first most important thing is we need dignity for ourselves. So you would reserve all kinds of posts for guys for the lower castes. Uh, you would humiliate the upper castes in various ways. Uh, whereas the earlier gangsters were only from the upper caste, now there was a huge number of gangsters from the lower castes creating law and order problems and saying this is appropriate. In that period, in, a play, in, in Bihar, which was our worst state, you had very little emphasis on growth, more on dignity. But then a new chief minister came in 2004, saying, you know, enough of this, we now have to go for growth. And he has pushed the growth, growth rate up to 12% just by cracking down on law and order, providing security, going on a very substantial road building programs. And you know, if a poor backward state can achieve 10 to 12%, it means something. We have a number of states where you say, people say Maoism is increasing. Uh, and it's a fact that there have been a number of such Maoist incidents. But in the three worst Maoist-affected states of Jharkhand, uh, Chhattisgarh, and uh, Orissa, industrial growth rate has been 15% a year. Now, this is partly because it's based substantially on converting ores into steel and aluminum. And this does result in a conflict between the big companies and the tribesmen whose land is being taken over for these projects. So, I mean, there is some kind of link. But it is not as though no development is going on. In many of these backward states, as I said, the literacy has improved. So I would say that there was a fear that the poor regions and so on uh, are getting left behind, nothing's being done for them. I would say in the last five, six years, what's really happened is there is this interconnection between politics and growth. Earlier on, in the poorer states, there was a lack of finance to use matching funds for any money coming from New Delhi. So even basic investments in roads or bridges or schools did not take place. With 9% growth, there has been a huge boom in government revenues. So the, there's now enough revenue at the state government level to produce the matching funds to attract funds from New Delhi as well. So there's a kind of virtuous cycle. So the infrastructure, the roads, elect rural electrification, all of this is improving. So I am substantially positive on, on that interrelation between economic growth uh, and what's happen on, happening on politics. We are getting new leaders who say that, you know, the substantial improvement is uh, something we need to go for to win elections. The earlier question 
you know, how big, uh, that there's a collapse of governance and how big a barrier is this to future growth? Okay, in my view, governance has been bad for a very long time. I don't buy the case that, you know, we really were pretty good and, you know, it has now collapsed. It has been bad for a very long time. When Rajiv Gandhi said, you know, I think 85% of all funds are wasted, it's not quite so bad today. I think there was a recent, uh, recent World Bank study, about 41% of the grain meant for the poor gets diverted. It's, it's okay. okay. Uh, an improvement. It's, a pretty, it's gone from absolutely terrible to fairly terrible. But, you know, I would not say that governance has collapsed. Again, when you see a state like Bihar, when Nitish Kumar came to power, as they said, if you applied to buy a car, there'd be a ransom note in your house by the evening. If you applied for permission to build a house, there'd be a ransom note by the evening. Nitish Kumar came and put 38,000 gangsters behind bars. And now suddenly you find, you know, there's such an improvement in the quality of governance that everybody's buying cars and building houses. That's part of the reason for 12% growth in this particularly backward state. So there are many cases, I think, of improved governance. There are I find that uh, social audits and so on are being conducted in the case of some government programs. So I said, I don't doubt that the leakages are very substantial. I don't think things are getting worse. But yes, as I said, if you see in the, look if in the future, do we need to reform our economic policies or do we need to reform governance? I have no doubt at all that reform of governance is far more important because we are much further down on that than we are on economic growth. <laughs> Um, there's two points to make, which is that, one, uh, the role of the states has become now much more important uh, because the center has let go of its controls. Uh, so what the states do today has become much more important. Alongside what has also happened, I think, because growth has been shown to be possible and, and, and you know, people getting richer very rapidly within a matter of generation uh, uh, has become possible. I think the, the, the electorate is become, becoming increasingly demanding. It, the aspirations of the people have changed. And so the, I think that that's also bringing about a political change, that you know, the rogues who don't deliver are more likely to be thrown out. And that's certainly in the 2009 parliamentary election, at least in, uh, in a very serious paper I did very recently, it comes out very, very strongly that where the state governments were delivering, Basically, they, their members, their candidates for the parliamentary elections won overwhelmingly. Where the where the chief ministers were not delivering, their candidates lost big time. Uh, and Bihar by itself has has shown the way. And then West Bengal election recently is the same way. So, so this is changing, and 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 so some some good news on that front, and and hope for that matter. Now, governance also is a very complicated affair. You know, we say governance with too many things out there. There are aspects of governance which have improved simply because the activity has moved into the uh, uh, into the government sector. It's just that our memory is so short that you know when you go from bad to good, you think it was always good. You mean think of the tele telephone industry? How long a queue you used to have to wait into for a phone which did not even work? Uh, uh, and there was nobody to call to because the network was so small. Five million people in the entire country were having telephones in 1990. Uh, automobile, you had to stay in the queue for four years uh, or pay a big you know, uh, bribe or something. Um, uh, airline ticket, you, you, I mean, getting an airline ticket about uh, 20 years ago was uh, an achievement. Today, it's all on the internet. You can get it. 
uh, railway tickets the same way. So a lot of the improvements through technological improvements, and, and by the way, even tax to GDP ratio has gone up. The income tax, particularly which nobody paid, that people are paying because technology is being used to enforce uh, 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 better. Uh, so, so there is on the one hand, there's you know, uh, I mean, the two or three things happening. One, a uh, lot of the services that the government used to provide are moving in the private sector. Uh, uh, two, the technology is uh, uh, being increasingly used. And three, uh, 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 um, there is a third issue, uh, 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 so uh, right to information. You know, there's a, uh, uh, a very strong right to information act out. Uh, out and, and part of the reason why we are hearing about so many of these scandals now is not because so many are now happening and they were not happening before, but it's simply that the right to information is bringing out the scandals. So that also helps actually, uh, ultimately, I will in the long run actually help uh, uh, build up the legal regimes better. Uh, and, and, and the simple fact of these, these cases being brought out uh, in, in, in the public is, is going to bring, exert some moral pressure as well. So I mean, for all those reasons, uh, I'm not saying you know, corruption and, uh, is about to disappear totally or governance is going to become like in the US, uh, uh, but, but certainly you know, there are good hopeful signs uh, and, and, and we can be optimistic. Um, I just have a comment on democracy and, and, and politics. Um, and there I would state that you asked how is this going to affect uh, the politics and the future. Um, you know, my professor told me that as a forecaster, you should always, um, you should uh, forecast often and always remind people when you're right. So I'm going to make a forecast <laughs> now, given that he has substantiated my growth forecast. I think corruption in India, which is, you know, behind governance, that's the big word. So let's come out with it. Corruption in India is huge. Corruption in India has increased and corruption in India has peaked. Um, and this has implications. In terms of the increase in corruption, what has happened is while corruption in any definition of the term has increased, it's also moved from very inefficient corruption to very efficient corruption. Um, so that's a good sign. Now in terms of the absolute value or the absolute nature of corruption and governance that I think because of the media, civil society, and behind it all, we all have our pet uh, theories. Besides uh, interest rates, I also believe in the middle class, that the middle class will uh, is ensuring that uh, corruption has peaked. And I, I think you will see a very rapid decline in most forms of corruption in India. All in all, that is reinforcing democracy in a huge way. And no the latest election in West Bengal had a turnout ratio. Uh, this is a, a communist state that was ruled for 34 years by the communists, uh, but had a turnout ratio this time of 87%. Given that 10% is the normal friction rate that people are not there, this is practically everybody voting without being required to vote as in Australia. So I think um, the story about India, and maybe it is because from the low base we are coming, uh, but can only get better. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but this has been an excellent, excellent panel. We've covered a lot of ground. Please help me in thanking our speakers today. <laughs> <laughs>